Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 263. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. everyone i hope everyone is fine and dandy and i hope in some small way that you's on the east coast of america somehow getting back to normal after them storms uh, we've got drizzly rain outside it's oh, terrible terrible <laughs> my hair's so flat no honest god he's went through the mill last time with that and i bet he's still going through the mill as well some people so you know, fingers crossed everything is okay for you. Tell you what's coming into today's show. It's the beginning of the month. I know it's the 7th, but it is the beginning of the month. We have art. We have Skeet giving us art this month. It is by Giuseppe Tirano, I think. I haven't got a clue how it's been. I don't think he sees it like that. But have a look at this art. Oh, is this science fiction or is this science fiction? I don't know where Skeet gets these from, but it's just cracking. Then we have our very own Simon Hindelbrandt. With his gaming, uh, the gaming, the future. This is the new little one that new little series that Simon has started up, and it is very exciting. Next is the main fiction, and it is by Pamela Sargent, no less, a smaller government, which is a cracking story narrated by Peter Piazza. That is today's show. Do we hope you'll stick around and enjoy it? Now, just before we get into the show, yes, a few little things, a few, few quirky things as well. Don't forget the Joe Haldeman, the 11th of November. It is only a few days away if you want to listen to Joe Haldeman talk about the Forever War and writing science fiction, you know, how he perceives it and everything like that. Pop along, it would be fantastic. I'll put another link in the post there. Please come over. This is how you support the show as well. So that would be lovely to see you. And... Don't forget, Larry's own Tales to Terrify Volume 1 has been out for a couple of days. It was released on the 31st of October. And that, again, that just helps support the kind of whole foundations of, you know, District of Wonders. And it's doing Larry's world of good as well. You know, I'm not saying doing it good, but it's just fantastic to get someone like Larry to produce, you know, for, for me, basically, you know, a book of, of this quality. So I'm so happy as well. So those are the new things. Like I say, I'm recording this uh, actually on the Tuesday before the Wednesday, and which I think, is it the 7th or the 6th or the 7th? <laughs> My wife has got the Christmas decorations all down from the loft. Yes. Has anybody beaten us? Drop me an email if you've got your Christmas decorations. We haven't got them up yet because it's, it's a bloody big event. It takes a while now. So but this living room where I'm sitting... That's all packed <laughs> Christmas 
fucking decoration. And I've given up arguing now. I just give up arguing because it just the kids go along with mum. Kids love it. But, you know, I, I was kind of... <laughs> I just bloody give up now, so... There you go. So the idea, she says, because I says, I'm going to mention it on the show. She says, well, tell everyone. The idea is, because once it's over, that's it. it, it the kind of taken down and put away, I think, the first, normally on the first, you know, the first of the, of the new year. But it's the build-up that she says she likes. She just loves the build-up for Christmas. So all this now is just sitting, you know, even on Christmas Day, it's not as good as the build-up, you know what I mean? So that's why she says she does it now. So there you go. So I think we'll get into today's show. First up is Skeet. Skeet, sir. Greetings, Starship Sofa listeners, and welcome once again to another installment of Covering the Sofa. I'm your host and art director, Skeet Sianski. This the month of November 2012, we have another very talented artist, Giuseppe Trojano, and his featured art piece entitled Obliterated. This illustration takes us to the far reaches of the cosmos, where a space station clings to the surface of a massive asteroid orbiting nearby planets. Its defenses crumble as a devastating onslaught of smaller but deadly asteroids invade the station's perimeter. With this piece, Giuseppe really shows off his skills of simplistic structure design, projecting size and mechanical complexity, as well as an epic sci-fi backdrop. He writes, My goal was to create a concept of a futuristic fantasy space station, which is some of my favorite subject matter. I like to dive into foreign worlds that don't exist and to breathe life into them and make it look as believable as possible. Born in Italy near Naples in 1977, Giuseppe moved to Germany in 1982. He studied art history, philosophy, and science of literature in Berlin. Along with attending some art classes, he's mostly a self-taught artist. Among other companies, he's worked with the indie game company Stone Rage as a concept artist. Giuseppe writes, I primarily use Photoshop, but I love to sketch with pen and paper too. I took some classes about color theory and design where I learned a lot about color mixing with real media, which helps me a lot. Now Giuseppe tells me he isn't really using his talents as much as he'd like to at the moment. I first discovered his work on DeviantArt.com under the pseudonym Flockenprot. And that's spelled F-L-O-C-K-E-N-P-R-A-C-H-T. Now, after seeing what this guy is capable of, I'm blown away that he doesn't have people banging down his door for some of the best panoramic future city sci-fi scenes around. So, here's a challenge to all of our Starship Sova listeners. Check out Giuseppe's work on DeviantArt.com. And if you know of anyone who needs serious, fine art designs for books, movies, uh, graphic novels, and the like, please contact him at www.flockandprot at gmail.com. And that's spelled F-L-O-C-K-E-N-P-R-A-C-H-T at gmail.com. You won't be disappointed. So as always, we thank our contributing artist and look forward to seeing more of Giuseppe's art here on Covering the sofa. Back to you, Mr. T. There you go. Have a look at that bit of artwork. You know what I mean? It's truly fantastic, man. It's gorgeous. Next up is Gaming the Future by our very own Simon. Simon, sir. Hi, my name's Simon Hildebrand, and welcome to Gaming the Future, where we explore the intersection of great games and great science fiction. This episode I'll be talking about Frank Herbert's Dune, probably my favourite novel, and a classic of science fiction that has inspired a generation of readers and a diverse variety of games.
Frank Herbert's 1965 novel Dune might be one of the best-known science fiction novels ever written. Mythic themes, an epic millennial timeline, and a rich gothic setting combine to form a truly unforgettable reading experience, and that experience has inspired a broad variety of derivative works, from a movie and two TV miniseries, through card and board games, and finally to our domain, eight computer games. I'll cover each of these eight in turn, exploring each title genre and its relationship with Herbert's original work. But first, a quick refresher course. What is Dune? Here's how Herbert's novels are described in Wikipedia. Set in the far future, amidst a feudal interstellar society in which noble houses, in control of individual planets, owe allegiance to the imperial house Carino, Dune tells the story of a young Paul Atreides, the heir apparent to Duke Leto Atreides, as his family accepts control of the desert planet Arrakis, the only source of the spice melange. Melange is the most important and valuable substance in the universe, increasing Arrakis's value as a fief. The story explores the multi-layered interactions of politics, religion, ecology, technology, and human emotion, as the forces of the Empire confront each other in a struggle for the control of Arrakis and its spice. Facing off against House Atreides are their sworn enemies House Harkonnen, previous masters of Arrakis and co-conspirators of the Spacing Guild, the organisation that enables space travel, and one of the biggest consumers of Melange. Meanwhile, the secretive Bene Gesserit Sisterhood subtly manipulates the bloodlines of the Great Houses with the aim of creating a superhuman, the Kwisatz Haderach of legend. Herbert wrote five sequels to the novel Dune, Dune Messiah, Children of Dune, God Emperor of Dune, Heretics of Dune, and Chapter House Dune. Add to this a series of prequels and sequels written by Herbert's son Brian and science fiction author Kevin J. Anderson, and you have a rich vein of material to mine while designing a game. Let's take a look at the first attempt, Cryo Interactive's Dune. Cryo's 1992 title is a hybrid strategy adventure game with stellar graphics and music for the time. Drawing visual inspiration from the film version, the game puts the player in the role of Paul Atreides as he explores Arrakis, gathers skills and allies, manages spice mining efforts, and ultimately drives out the Harkonnen. This game is a great match for fans of the novels, with many of the core characters making an appearance, and the world of Arrakis is presented in a very immersive way. For fans of the films, a large part of the game takes place, in a sense, in the harvesting and mining montages. You spend a significant part of your playtime winning the trust of siege leaders, organising harvesting crews and training your troops. A solid and entertaining game, ultimately, with a soundtrack of such high quality that a friend and I actually taped it to listen to, even while we were away from the computer. Well worth a try, for those retronauts willing to brave DOSBox or similar to get it running. The next game that was released, Dune 2, is a very different beast. Widely recognised as the first real-time strategy game, as we know them today at least, it's not surprising that it was developed by Westwood Studios, creators of possibly the most famous RTS franchise, Command & Conquer. While primitive, Dune 2 is fascinating to modern RTS players, because so little has changed. Researching your way up tech trees, base building, offensive and defensive strategies, it's all remarkably familiar. But where Cryo's Dune sticks very close to the original story, Dune 2 takes more than a few liberties. For a start, Westwood wanted to give players three full campaigns, each played as a different noble house. Dissatisfied with the alternatives beyond using the Atreides and the Harkonnen, they invented a whole new non-canon house, which they called the Ordos. And while there are some nice Dune touches, the inclusion of sandworms and wind traps particularly, ultimately the setting is somewhat interchangeable. This is not to say that Dune 2 isn't a fun game, even decades after it was created. Players that can handle a little deprivation like the absence of unit grouping or, or even multi-unit select, will find Dune Toon solid and entertaining. Westwood have returned to the Dune universe twice more. In 1998, they remade Dune 2 with contemporary graphics and live-action cutscenes, something they popularised in their Command & Conquer titles. This they followed with a sequel in 2001 called Emperor Battle for Dune. These titles received a lukewarm reception. Dune 2000 was criticised as a drab duplicate of the original while Emperor had AI problems. While reasonably fun, I would recommend these only to completists. Westwood aren't the only ones to try and recapture past success in this franchise. In 2001, Cryo Interactive released Frank Herbert's Dune, 
a 3D adventure game based on the Sci-Fi Channel's miniseries of the same name. Unfortunately, it flopped and left Cryo bankrupt, halting development of another Dune title called Dune Generations, which was still in beta testing at that point. Finally, we have an honorary mention for two much less known titles. One is an online textual role-playing server called Dune Mud for multi-user dimension, and the other is a collaborative writing game called Quest for Arrakis. While much more niche than the other titles I've mentioned, each has a community of dedicated fans. It goes to show that the Dune franchise isn't only associated with big-budget titles, it also has the DIY gaming crowd inspired. And that's all of them. Eight games inspired to a greater or lesser extent by a true classic of science fiction. I hope this has got some of you interested in seeking out and trying one or more of these classic titles. Most of them are available as abandonware on the internet, and may yet see re-release on retro gaming sites like Good Old Games at GOG.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for what may be my all-time favourite game, Startopia. Our music is by Cheap Shot from the album Streets of Base, used with permission. Links to that and everything else I've mentioned in the show notes at my website, simonhildebrandt.com. I thank you, Simon. I'll put a link on to Simon's blog. Please pop over there and say hello and you kind of follow what Simon's saying about gaming in the future. Next up is The Main Fiction, A Smaller Government by Pamela Sargent. I'll give you a little bio about Pamela Sargent. Pamela Sargent sold her first published story during her senior year at college at the State University of New York, Birmingham University, where she earned a BA and an MA in philosophy and also studied ancient history and Greek. She is the author of several highly praised novels, among them Cloned Lives, which came out in 1976, and The Sudden Star, 1979, The Golden Space, 1982, and The Alien Upstairs, 1983. Her novel, Venus of Dreams, which came out in 1986, was selected by the Eastern Press for its masterpiece of science fiction, Series writer, physicist Gregory Benford described it as a sensitive portrait of people caught up in a vast project. Pamela Sargent is also the author of Earthseed 1983, chosen as best book for young adults by American Library Association. There's actually a film being optioned, or film option rights for Earthseed, so you know, you never know that was optioned in 2011, so fingers crossed that's still going ahead. Pamela Sargent also is an editor and anthologist. In the 70s, she edited Women of Wonder series, the first collection of science fiction by women. Her other anthologies, Biofutures, and with British science fiction writer Ian Watson, she co-edited Afterlives. Her novel, Climb the Wind, a novel of another America, was published by Harper Prism in January 1999 and was the finalist in the Sidewise Award for Alternative History. Graham Wilson, writing in the realms of fantasy, calls this book a most enjoyable and entertaining new alternative history adventure, which brings a new dimension to the form. While Science Fiction Chronicle describes it as a first-class work and a first-class writer, her more recent publications include the 2004 Conqueror Fantastic by Dore, an anthology of original stories, and Thumbprint, Golden Griffin, a collection of Sargent's short fiction, with an introduction by James Morrow. Everyone knows James Morrow on Starship Sova. In 2007, Tor Book released or reissued Earthseed, along with a new novel for younger readers, Farseed. Farseed was also selected by the New York Public Library for their 2008 Books for the Teenage list of best books for young adults. The third novel, Seed Seeker, was published by Tor in 2010. Pamela lives in Albany, New York. According to the Science Fiction Internet Database, first short story, Landed Minority, which was published in 1970, and Pamela's last story, Strawberry Birdies, was published in 2011 in Asimov's. This story was published in 2007 in Fast Forward, Future Fiction from the Cutting Edge, which was published by Pyre Books with Lou Anders as the anthologist. 
The story is narrated by Peter Piazza. Peter's done quite a number of narrations for Starship Sova, and his latest one, which will be coming up soon, is Greener by Josh Roseman. Josh, as you know, narrates for Starship Sova now and again, and as you, I don't know if anyone listening to bygone shows, but he's just starting to break out in the writing world as well. He had another story published in Asimov's, and Pete's just kindly narrated that one as well. So there you go. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... A Smaller Government by Pamela Sargent Read by Peter Piazza My goal is to cut government in half in 25 years, to get it down to the size where we can drown it in the bathtub. Grover Norquist Hector was sitting on his usual bench in Lafayette Park across the street from the White House, freezing his ass off in the cold wintry air. On a bench nearby, the homeless lobbyist was consulting with the homeless philosopher. The philosopher was expounding to the lobbyist and anyone else within earshot about something he called the ethics bank and moral bankruptcy problem, although he wasn't being all that coherent. Now he was saying something about physical manifestations of moral lapses and chickens coming home to roost. The mention of chickens reminded Hector that he hadn't chowed down in a while, he was thinking that maybe it was about time to head for the shelter when the night air rippled. Then there was a loud whooshing sound, followed by a thunderclap. Shit! the homeless lobbyist exclaimed. What the hell? the homeless philosopher asked. For a moment, Hector had wondered if the rippling air and the whooshing noise were only symptoms of some weird-ass case of the DTs, but the lobbyist and the philosopher had apparently seen and heard the same thing. Then the bright lights across the way went out, and the White House disappeared. Shit! The homeless lobbyist shouted again. He dropped his brown paper bag, and the bottle inside shattered. Hector sat there, too surprised to move. After a few moments, the low rumble to Hector's right grew into a roar. A convoy of tanks rolled past the Eisenhower Executive Office building and stopped in front of the park. A couple of soldiers climbed down from one of the tanks, while the other members of the armed services fanned out across the park. "'Come on!' the taller of the soldiers said as he approached. To Hector's left, the lobbyist and the philosopher were being dragged away by several other soldiers. "'What the hell's going on?' Hector asked. "'Where'd the White House go?' "'It didn't go anywhere,' the soldiers grabbed him by the arms. "'It disappeared, for Christ's sake!' he twisted in their grip. "'Was sitting right here, and it fucking disappeared!' "'Not exactly!' the shorter soldier replied. The Secretary of Commerce was with the Senator and the Congressman in a relatively comfy, secure, and undisclosed location. The Secret Service had brought in some snacks, plates of little puffed pastries with shrimp and crab meat, diminutive tarts, and tiny cocktail wieners impaled on toothpicks. The Secretary could have used a cocktail himself, but the only beverages in evidence were coffee, tea, bottled water, and assorted soft drinks. He sat back with a cup of coffee, figuring he'd need the caffeine to stay awake throughout the State of the Union address. The president was not only long-winded, but also had a voice that had become noticeably whinier and more high-pitched since his inauguration a year ago. If he had sounded like that during the campaign, thought the secretary, he would never have made it past the first primary. Then again, the president had a lot on his mind, enough to give anyone a whiny voice and rapidly graying hair. His predecessor had left him with cesspools on all fronts. "'Did he get Joey to polish the speech this time?' the senator asked. She was an imposing woman from Connecticut who belonged to the other party. "'I don't know,' the secretary replied. He wasn't exactly in the inner circle and didn't even know who among the president's speechwriters had sketched out the first draft. "'Sure hope he did,' the congressman muttered. He was a barrel-chested man of the secretary's own party from Illinois.' or else we're in for a long fucking night. On the large plasma screen tuned to C-SPAN to spare the secretary any media gas-bagging from the major networks, the president was still glad-handing his way toward the dais, shaking hands and clutching shoulders. The secretary had finished his coffee and was munching on a tiny cocktail franc by the time the president was handing copies of his address to the vice president and the speaker of the house. The screen abruptly went blank. Fucking C-SPAN, the congressman said. If you ask me, they got too many damn glitches lately. 
The secretary reached for the remote on the coffee table and switched to CNN. Just disappeared. A blonde newsbabe was on the screen. She looked a bit green around the gills, but not because of any issues with the screen's color contrast controls. And now a report's coming in from our White House correspondent. The White House is gone, too. Holy shit, the congressman said. In the corner of the room, two of the Secret Service agents were cupping their ears, clearly intent on whatever was coming in through their earpieces. The secretary switched to Fox. Reports from all over the city, the voice of the male correspondent intoned. The dark and murky image on the screen showed tanks rolling past Lafayette Park. The secretary was seized by a powerful surge of emotion, compounded of both ecstasy and terror. He, the senator, and the congressman, those chosen this time, to be tucked away in the customary secure and undisclosed location while the rest of Washington's potentates were at the Capitol, might be all that was left of the government. He tried for NBC, but found himself back at C-SPAN. The president was still at the podium, with no words coming out of his mouth, while the look on his face was that of a man about to be arrested. A big bruiser wearing an earpiece was passing a piece of paper to him. I don't get it, the congressman said. Three of the Secret Service agents stepped in front of the screen, blocking the secretary's view. What's going on? he asked. The agent tapped his earpiece. You're not going to believe this, Mr. Secretary, he began. The Secret Service officer had performed some odd actions in the course of his duties. He had ridden in the freight elevators of hotels where the president was staying, the only elevators that could be truly secured, with him and his fellow agents packed as tightly around their charge as passengers on a low-fare flight. He had rerouted traffic during rush hours to allow for the presidential motorcade, closely observed annoyed chefs in restaurant kitchens, had forced the cancellation of long-held reservations at resorts where Air Force One was headed, and generally made an unholy nuisance of himself in the course of protecting the commander-in-chief. But looking out for the big guy during the State of the Union address was, generally speaking, a piece of cake, because security was so tight throughout the Capitol and in D.C. at that time. But now, looking around at the assembled dignitaries in the House chamber, he could see that pretty much all of them suspected that something was up. One of his fellow agents had discreetly passed a note to the President just before he was about to begin his opening remarks— and so far the president was doing a decent job of huddling with the vice president and the speaker, as if he just had a few last-minute items to iron out. But the Supreme Court justices were definitely looking restless, while the Joint Chiefs of Staff looked like they had bigger-than-usual ramrods up their asses. Camera crews from the networks were still going about their business, and he wondered what the TV audience, that small percentage that even bothered to watch the State of the Union, was seeing. C-SPAN's just about to cut off its cameras, a voice said in his earpiece, answering his question. And all the networks have gone to their anchors for special reports. We've got the Capitol and the White House surrounded, so nothing's going to get through. There was a pause. Okay, guys. Time to tell you just exactly what's going on. But brace yourselves. Terrorists, the officer thought. They'd finally done it struck at a time when the whole country, or at least that segment of it that wasn't in the middle of watching ESPN, HBO, or rented DVDs, would be transfixed with terror, glued to their screens the way they'd been during those dark days in September at the turn of the century. All of the Secret Service agents inside the chamber, those by the doorways at the end of the aisles, in the balcony with the First Lady and honored guests, and standing near the President, stood at attention while continuing to scan the room, heads turning from side to side. It's like this, the voice in his ear continued. The Capitol, like, suddenly got real small. And so did the White House. What happened was this weird rippling in the air kind of deal. And then suddenly stuff shrank. I'm talking about the White House, the Capitol, the House and Senate office buildings, and pretty much everything on either side of Pennsylvania Avenue. Basically, the White House is now about the size of Malibu Barbie's beach house, and the Capitol Dome isn't much bigger than a goddamn teacup. The Secret Service officer pondered this statement. If the Capitol was so tiny, how could all of them still be inside it? The answer came to him just before the voice provided further illumination. And it looks like all of you, us, shrank right along with everything else. 
Pennsylvania Avenue was still the same size, despite the shrunken size of the border. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style in real estate. Rows of troops, along with police called in from surrounding counties of Maryland and Virginia, had been stationed around the Capitol and were lined up on Constitution and Independence Avenues, ready to protect the Lilliputians trapped inside the Capitol building from any Brobdignagian constituents seeking redress for real or imagined grievances. There was a rumor that some residents of Anacostia were preparing to converge on the Capitol. They could stamp us all flat, the First Lady thought. She stared at her hands, which seemed the same size they had always been, but if everything here had shrunk proportionately, then everything should still look the same. If she went outside, she would notice the difference. An eagle soaring overhead would probably look like an Airbus. She sat in an office just outside the House chamber, along with the President, the Vice President, the Vice President's wife, the National Security Advisor, the Domestic Policy Advisor, and several Secret Service agents, her jaws aching from the smile she had struggled to keep in place even after she had been let out of the chamber and ushered to this temporary sanctuary. Her husband, as usual when things got really heavy, had a bewildered expression on his face, as if hoping that real soon now somebody would tell him exactly what to do. So what the hell happens now? the vice president asked, looking even more morose than usual. Can't park our asses here forever. True enough, the domestic policy advisor muttered as he rubbed his bald pate, but we're safer staying here for the moment, easier to protect us. The first lady shuddered, then thought of all the time she had spent refurbishing the White House, rescuing it from the tacky excesses of her predecessor, and restoring the residence to its former glory only to have it all taken from her, reduced to the size of a dollhouse. But perhaps all of her efforts weren't necessarily wasted. Couldn't we all just go back to the White House, she asked? Her husband gazed at her as if clutching a life preserver. The vice president glowered at her as though wanting to push her overboard. I mean, it's teeny now, but so are we, apparently, and I'm sure we could be just as well protected there. The staff had to be as tiny as they were, at least those who were still attending to their nighttime duties, so... Life could go on, even if on a somewhat smaller scale. Well, that's all well and good for you, the vice president's wife murmured, but where are we supposed to live? If we set foot inside our house, it's a toss-up which of our cat gobbles us up first. The vice presidential residence had apparently escaped shrinkage along with most of Washington, but that was small consolation to the first lady. The Rayburn, Longworth, and Cannon House office buildings, along with the Russell, Dirksen, and Hart Senate office buildings, were the size of a set of children's blocks, while the Supreme Court building could now rest easily on scales held by any good-sized statue of justice. She should have been grateful that the FBI building hadn't shrunk during the daytime, when many more people there would have been in their offices, and that the Pentagon and the CIA remained untouched, even though nobody there had been able to prevent what seemed a massive breach of national security. I have an idea, 
the foreign policy advisor said. Couldn't we just, like, well, go about our usual business? She cast a wide-eyed glance around the room. I mean, apparently the broadcast wasn't affected, at least not until the cameramen were told to shut it down, so wouldn't we still look the same on TV? That won't do us any good the next time we hold a summit, the vice president growled. Or a state dinner, for that matter, the first lady said. The vice president frowned even more. Some superpower we'd look like. A door opened, and a man wearing the dark suit and earpiece of a Secret Service agent lunged into the room and slammed the door behind him. Got some news, he said. Hope it's good news, the president said, looking a little less lost. The vice president scowled. In this context, about the only thing that might count as good news is getting low bids from Mattel and Toys R Us for future government services. Better news than that, the agent replied. The house sergeant-at-arms made the discovery. He was standing in a doorway at the east front of the Capitol because, after all the strangeness of the evening, he needed a smoke. Luckily, his cigarettes had shrunk along with him, while the few inches of snow that had been predicted for that evening had failed to materialize. He would not have wanted to confront a glacial mass in order to enjoy a cigarette. He stood above the doorway, puffing away, until someone tapped him on the shoulder. He turned to find that the mayor of Washington, D.C. had also stepped out for a smoke. The two men smoked together in silence, gazing out at the mountainous, dark forms of tanks and forests of trousered legs that surrounded the capital. Finally, the sergeant-at-arms said, "'Think I'll take a walk.' "'Man, maybe that ain't such a good idea,' the mayor said. "'You being size so small as you are.' "'I advise against it,' a member of the honor guard said behind them. "'You wouldn't want to get gushed.' Another serviceman nodded his head. "'Nobody's going to gush me with all those tanks around, "'and my doc keeps telling me I need more exercise, "'what with my cholesterol and all,' the sergeant-at-arms said." If you're worried about your cholesterol, another young military man muttered, then you ought to quit smoking. Watch out for pigeons, the mayor added. The sergeant-at-arms descended the steps, breathing in the cold night air between drags, and wondered how that was possible. Maybe the molecules of air around him had shrunk along with the capital. He dropped his butt, grounded out with his foot, and tried to recall what one of his high school science teachers had said about a square cube law or whatever it was, if people were the size of grasshoppers, they'd be able to hop around like grasshoppers. He was envisioning tiny members of Congress leaping high in the air from the Capitol steps, flapping their arms to ward off flies that would be nearly half their size, when the air seemed to ripple around him. For a moment, as his body vibrated, he felt a not unpleasant electrical sensation as the ground shifted under his feet. Three uniformed policemen ran toward him, followed by a man in a long tweed coat, and then the sergeant-at-arms saw that the tanks, although still imposing, were now their normal size. The men coming toward him were of normal size, too. In fact, two of them were considerably shorter than he was. "'What the hell did you just do?' the man in the tweed coat asked. "'Came outside for a smoke took a walk,' the sergeant-at-arms replied. "'What you did,' one of the cops said, "'was just pop out of nowhere. "'Maybe we'd better take you in for questioning.' The policeman gestured toward the barricades and at the tiny Capitol Dome inside them, which glowed under its small floodlights, its tiny flags on its east and west sides, still proudly flying. I'm the house sergeant-at-arms. I can show you my ID. He was about to reach inside his jacket pocket before realizing that this might not be such a good idea, with armed cops standing around. Wait a minute. The tweed-coated man scratched his head. Maybe we'd better try an experiment. The man clapped a hand on the sergeant-at-arms' shoulder and shoved him toward the miniature capital. He felt the vibrations and then the prickly electrical sensations again as the capital abruptly loomed up before him in all of its majesty. So that's how it works, the man in tweed said softly. The two men turned around in unison to face six legs as big as sequoias. Far above them, a voice as loud as God's exclaimed, "'Jesus H. Christ!' They moved toward the policeman. This time, the sergeant-at-arms felt himself suddenly shooting up like Jack's beanstalk, or maybe Alice in Wonderland after eating that weird cookie in the Disney flick that was a favorite of his daughter's. He was again looking down at two cops who were shorter than he was. "'What now?' the sergeant-at-arms asked. "'Evacuate the capital,' the man in the tweed coat said. 
It had taken a couple of weeks, but everything was almost back to normal, or at least as normal as anything could be under the circumstances. The president's chief of staff stood at his office window, gazing below at the cordon of tanks and soldiers around the tiny White House. He had to move himself and the rest of the staff over to the Eisenhower Executive Office building, which had caused a fair amount of hard feeling. Those who had lost their cherished offices in the West Wing were not happy about their relocation to the EEOB, while those who had earlier been exiled to that Siberia resented having to move their operations to the new executive office building, the State Department, and the campus of George Washington University, where some basement offices had been turned over to them. His first trip down Pennsylvania Avenue, three days after everyone had been evacuated from all the shrunken buildings, had been a sobering experience. The reduction of the FBI building had been almost as disturbing to see as the tiny capital. There had been talk of bringing out essential records, which would have restored them all to their normal size once they were carried outside the Peewee Zone, the appellation that had unfortunately adhered to the region of shrinkage. The problem was figuring out what was essential, since just about everything was considered essential by somebody in authority, and then finding places to store the whole shebang. In the meantime, FBI agents could no longer access their files and computers. Senators and representatives were cut off from the tiny records in their offices. The Supreme Court justices could no longer peruse their now minute law volumes. And documents in the National Archives and at the Federal Trade Commission were unreadable to anyone over three inches in height. At least the Lincoln Memorial, the Smithsonian Institution, and other national treasures had escaped— he would not have been able to bear seeing the Washington Monument reduced to the size of a pencil. It was also their good fortune that the offices of the Internal Revenue Service, not far from the zone, had not been affected. But to have so many sites of power reduced to the size of scattered toys had been a heavy blow. The chief of staff thought of his recent conversation with the Canadian ambassador, whose embassy on Pennsylvania Avenue was one of the shrunken structures. So now you know how we feel sometimes, eh? The ambassador had said in his usually bland voice. The phone on the desk behind him beeped. He turned to pick up the receiver. The first lady's chief of staff is here, his receptionist voice said. Send her in. The door opened. A tall and emaciated woman in a red suit strode inside and sat down in the worn leather chair on the other side of the desk. How are things going over at Blair House, he asked. The first family was now in residence at the guest house across the street from the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Oh, about as well as you'd expect, the first lady's chief of staff replied. In other words, they totally suck. Everybody's bitching. The first lady still thinks that she and the president should have moved into the vice president's residence. Uh, you know how the vice president felt about that. Actually, it had been the vice president's wife who had pitched a fit at the suggestion, but the Veep hadn't looked overjoyed at the idea of sharing their quarters with the first family either. The setup we've got now is about the best we can do in the interim. The interim, he thought. He was still imagining that the tiny buildings would somehow balloon to normal size. He wished that they'd appoint a real science advisor to the president's staff instead of that Bible college biologist— who had put in to appease the more rabid of their constituents. Maybe they should put out some feelers to some of those strange institutes of nanotechnology that were popping up around the country. He didn't know much about nanotechnology, except that it had something to do with very tiny things. I suppose you're right, the First Lady's Chief of Staff murmured, but after all the work we put in fixing up the White House, she paused. That's what I'm here about. The First Lady is getting very concerned about the condition of the furnishings there. The Chief of Staff scowled at his colleague. What can possibly happen to them now? Tiny bits of dust. Tiny spiders weaving their webs. Teeny little moths. Teeny little bacteria in the kitchens. Eensy-weensy dust bunnies in the Lincoln bedroom and the Oval Office and everywhere else. You name it. She sighed. We want to send in a cleaning crew. The chief of staff was suddenly wary. We can't, he managed to say. Come on, we already know that people can shrink going into the zone and expand on their way out. Just shrink them in and grow them out. He wondered how she had found that out. The Secret Service had sent some agents into the FBI building and both buildings of the National Gallery of Art, 
under cover of night, making sure that they were unobserved by anyone except a few guards, and they had gone inside and emerged again with no apparent ill effects. "'Who told you that?' he asked, bowing silently to punish the leaker. It occurred to him then that if they could ever find a way to control the shrinking process, tiny little buildings might make for very effective and easily guarded prisons.' That would also settle the hash of any whistleblowers who crept in to expose abuses in the system. Let's just say I have my sources, and this place leaks like a sieve. The First Lady's factotum leaned forward. So what do you say? It's too risky. Maybe the next time somebody will go in and stay tiny when they come out. Or maybe they'll suddenly blow up when they're inside and mess up the whole damn place. You don't have any reason to think that'll happen. I don't have any reason to think that it won't. He was silent for a bit. Wait until we've run a few more tests. His counterpart leaned back. Okay, okay. She let out her breath. But don't take too long. You have no idea how messy things can get when you haven't cleaned in a while. She was worse than his mother. By cherry blossom time, it was clear that people could go into the shrunken artifacts and come out again, shrinking and then expanding with no apparent problems. The metro under the zone was running again, as long as passengers boarded and exited the trains at stops outside the zone, it didn't much matter if they shrank in the interim, and nobody noticed much difference during the ride anyway. By Memorial Day weekend, tourists were returning to visit all of the famous sites, including the cute little capital and diminutive White House, although no visitors were allowed inside, while a skeleton staff of agents, law clerks, and congressional aides scanned and photographed the most essential of the small documents inside the zone and emailed copies to the larger world outside. Wireless internet access was apparently unaffected by the differences in scale. Which was all very well, the senator from Montana thought, but having to put up with a shithole of an office in the Ford House office building instead of her nicely appointed and roomy space inside the Hart building, was really getting on her nerves. That all of the congresspeople were even more crowded in the offices over at the O'Neill House office building, since they had conceded one of their two remaining unshrunken buildings to the Senate, did nothing to assuage her annoyance. One of her aides sat in a corner, pecking away at a laptop. Another aide was pouring himself a cup of instant coffee at the counter near the microwave. "'Pour me a cup of joe, too,' the senator said. The young man poured, stirred, and set the cup on her desk with a flourish. The senator looked around resentfully at her crowded domain. "'I don't know how much longer I can take this,' she added. "'Got a good mind to announce I'm not running again "'and that I'm resigning from public service "'and hauling ass back to Butte.' "'I thought you hated Butte,' the young woman with the laptop said." The senator had made her remark about Butte only for rhetorical purposes because it sounded better than saying that she was thinking of resigning and then getting into the lobbying racket. Fortunately, K Street lay well outside the Pee-wee zone. At least I'll have enough space to turn around in back home, the senator replied. Using home as a synonym for Montana was another rhetorical flourish. She had been living quite contentedly in her house in Virginia's much tamer horse country, for over a decade. Look, the fact of the matter is that the rest of my staff inside Hart has a lot more room right now than we do. They should be done with copying and emailing everything we need pretty soon, Senator, the mail aide said. That was the problem, the Senator thought, gazing at the pillars of printouts still standing on her desk for lack of enough filing cabinets. They would finish retrieving everything she really had to have within a week or so, and then she would have the impossible task of finding space for those staffers here. Somebody should do something, she muttered. The female aide looked up from her laptop. Why don't you introduce a resolution, she asked. A resolution about what? Resolved that the Senate will return to its offices and chambers by election day in order to more effectively continue to serve the American people. I mean, if everybody's staff can go in and out and in and out and get bigger and smaller as needed, there's like no reason why the whole Senate can't do the same. And if you introduce a resolution, somebody in the House will probably introduce one, and then maybe everything can finally get back to normal. There was some logic to that, but something inside her resisted the suggestion. 
It's absurd, the senator said. We, we can't have little tiny senators and Congress people debating and passing laws inside the zone and having them signed by an itsy bitsy president. Who the hell would take us seriously? What difference would it make, the male aide asked. There's nothing in the Constitution or the rules of the Senate that says you have to be a certain size to hold hearings and pass laws. Besides, everything would still look the same on TV. Her aides had a point. The senator finished her coffee, then said, Maybe you could start drafting that resolution, but let's change the date. We'll be back to business as usual by the 4th of July. Shrinkage had done nothing to improve the slovenly ambience of the White House press room. The same crappy chairs were still there, the White House correspondent noticed, as he filed in behind some other news folk. The same outdated equipment, the same wires all over the floor, even the same coffee and food stains on the tabletops. But the shabby familiarity of it all was oddly reassuring. The White House correspondence dinner, even though postponed to a later date than usual, had been a reassuring event this year as well, drawing nearly the same number of Hollywood celebrities as in the past. It had helped that the comedian providing the entertainment had been warned not to make any jokes about size or smallness, unless he wanted everybody in the press corps and all their famous friends to boycott his show permanently and also bring some pressure to bear on his bosses. The guy had been relying far too much on such humor for his program anyway. The correspondent, whose name everyone tended to forget more and more often since his network's ratings had tanked, had not been a happy camper when the head of the news department had told him, in no uncertain terms, that if getting tiny was what was needed to cover the president, then tiny was what he would get, unless he preferred to lose his job. It wasn't as if he would have to stay tiny, except when he was in the White House or doing stand-ups outside of it. The network had nixed any footage that showed any of their newspeople towering over either the official residence or the Capitol. And there was no danger that anybody going into the zone wouldn't be able to get big again outside of it. The president had been living inside the White House for over a month now, and he was still able to resume his six feet of height for trips to Camp David. There were also the correspondent's home in Georgetown, his Manhattan digs, his son's tuition at William and Mary, and the financial arrangements with his first and second ex-wives to consider. Anyway, he told himself, everything was pretty much photo ops these days. As long as everything looked a certain way, people in front of their TVs would come away with the impression that nothing essential had changed. Eventually, most of them might forget that any shrinkage at all had occurred. He sat down in his usual seat in the front row, as the camera crews finished setting up and his colleagues settled in around him. What mattered was acting as though everything was still the same, and now that he was here it was easier to feel that way, especially since there were no windows in the press room to reveal the size of everything outside these tiny walls. They were all in this together, he and the president and everybody else in Washington who mattered. He had to look at it that way. The president's press secretary entered the room, smiling as he approached the podium, then resumed his usual bland expression. I have a few announcements to make, he began, and then you can ask your questions. The correspondent already knew what those announcements would include. His sources had told him that in addition to the usual bromides about staying the newest course in the Middle East, the growing strength of the economy as indicated by the latest statistics, and more insistence that the investigation of the shrinkage incident was continuing to go forward, the president's staff had decided to have the British Prime Minister visit the president at his summer home, instead of at the White House. Apparently, even a close ally would not shrink in order to schmooze. He settled back in his rickety chair, his spirits lifted just a bit. In spite of everything, the useless ritual of the White House daily briefing was comforting. A small congressional investigative committee, both in numbers and size, met to inquire into what happened. Any ideas who did this to us? the chairman asked. The eyes of his four fellow senators and their five House colleagues remained devoid of inspirational sparks. Moments passed. A terrorist, the senator from Maryland said at last. Some joker of a tech terrorist. He slapped the table with one meaty hand. Right, muttered the congresswoman from Florida. He's like riding around in some uh, conveyance, picking on national symbols to shrink, uh, diminish... Sure, sure, like Captain Nemo sinking warships with a submarine, the chairman snorted. If you ask me, 
Maybe we'd better bring in some of those nano-whatever-they-are scientists. They might be able to tell us something. Or else, they might be behind all of this, the senator from Maryland muttered. There's some mighty suspicious characters among scientists. A lot of them aren't even Americans. In terms of environmental impact, the senator from Kentucky intoned, we might leave a far less large footprint on the earth if we remained at a smaller level. Perhaps we should be asking the EPA to address the environmental effects of shrinkage. We're here to figure out how to find the guys that did this, the senator from Maryland said, not to ride your hobby horse. We couldn't get shrunk any smaller, could we? The chairman asked. I mean, we're already so small, he sighed. We have to get to the bottom of this. He did not say that he suspected what the others were already thinking, that this might only be the beginning. There were a whole lot of places that the Joker, or Jokers, might be planning to reduce. Hector wasn't on his usual bench, and neither were the homeless lobbyist and the homeless philosopher. The benches where they usually sat were now behind a protective cordon of soldiers, and there were rumors that more of the park would be declared out of bounds. At this rate, he and the lobbyist and the philosopher would soon be living in the middle of H Street. But Hector understood. The Secret Service had to think about security, and there had been stories going around about people who were angry enough over various issues to want to rush the place and stomp on everything, the White House and the Capitol. In a way, he really couldn't blame them for feeling that way, but if they had talked to the homeless philosopher, they would have realized that such hopes were futile. You see, it's this way, the philosopher had explained to him during a recent seminar and consultation over a pint of rye. You got this here zone where everything shrinks, so even if people got past them soldiers and the cops and the Secret Service and everything else, they'd get small as soon as they got inside the zone. So how the hell could they stop anything? They'd just be milling around on the lawn until they got arrested. Geez, they couldn't even lob a few big rocks at the place because the rocks would shrink on their way in. So why are they beefing up security so much, Hector had asked. If there's anything to your goddamn premise, they could just station a few guys here and there and save some bucks. It's not like the deficit's going to shrink. Oh, there's probably good reasons for all the protection, the philosopher had replied. You still got to worry about terrorists. Teeny tiny terrorists could still do a hell of a lot of damage, especially if they're aiming at tiny targets. But if you ask me, I think they beefed up security out of habit. It's what they do, whatever the reason. Anything happens, get more security. It doesn't matter what. More of the same. Problem solved. Makes them feel important. That had seemed like fallacious reasoning to Hector, but he had been too far in the bag by then to offer up a convincing refutation. The homeless philosopher suddenly stood up. Even in the evening light, Hector could see that the homeless lobbyist was trying to restrain the other man. The philosopher knocked the lobbyist's arms away, staggered toward the line of soldiers, then drew himself up. Little bastards, he yelled. Little pricks. You're bigger than they are. Shit, I'm bigger than they are. So why don't you act like it? The soldiers were taking aim. Shut your pie hole, Hector had wanted to shout, but fear constricted his throat. Little bastards! The philosopher was not about to quit. You were always small, goddammit. You were always little guys. You didn't shrink. You diminished yourselves. You fucking did it to yourselves. Several soldiers were moving rapidly toward the philosopher, but at least they had lowered their rifles. You diminished yourselves, the philosopher cried as the soldiers dragged him away. In their boots and gear, they seemed so much bigger than his friend. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Pamela's. I'll put lots of links on if, if you, you know, you're interested in what Pamela Sargent's work does or you know, where, where our website and books to our e-reads and to tour, anything like that. And I've also put a link on to that to fast forward, the, the future cutting edge, where this story came about. So you know, pop to the front of the website, book yourself a course with Joe Haldeman, check out <laughs> Tales to Terrify, and while you're there, go and see Pamela. How about that? Du -du 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 -du. <laughs> Dying coke at bloody eight in the morning. That's what does that. So that is today's show. Hope you've enjoyed it. I do hope you'll stick around again. Come back next week. Until then, I'd just like to say good night from me. Ooh.
Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Sofa. This presentation has been brought to you by the district. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.